be in Matthew 23. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, the one in the f- pew in front of you is available, and we're going to be on page 878. This is odd for us. This is, I think, our 78th week in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been going fairly slowly through this book. But in looking at chapter 23, we couldn't really figure out how to break it up. Jesus is addressing the Pharisees in in this, I hesitate to call it a rant, but it's kind of like that. He's just kind of unloading on the religious leaders. It's a long text, so we're not going to get into every little detail of it this morning, but it didn't make sense to break it up, so we're just going to see how we do. The middle of this passage, which we'll get to in a few minutes, is filled with seven woes. The word woe, if you remember back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, Uh, blessed are those who mourn. The word blessed means, oh, how happy. Woe is often used as an opposite to that word blessed. And the Greek word is spelled O-U-A-I. So Jesus goes, that's how he's feeling right now about the Pharisees. And we're going to see that they are religious, devoted, capable people that miss Jesus. The most important thing, they miss Jesus. And the challenge for us is we can read this and we can go, man, I'm glad I'm not a Pharisee. I'm glad I wasn't a religious leader in the first century. But the truth is, there's a word for all of us in this chapter. We don't like to hear harsh words. We want to hear uh, kind words, joyful words, happy words. We want to be affirmed. And God's word is full of that. We don't like to be rebuked, though. Oftentimes, people say that it's not loving. This kind, of, this kind of thing is not loving. We hear Jesus' words, and he says things like, you're blind, you're snakes, you're baby snakes, brood of vipers. And we think that's just not very nice. But sometimes the most loving thing is to tell the truth in a way that gets people to think, that knocks them out of their stupor. And that's a gift that Jesus gives us in this chapter. And it's important, I think, to recognize that we are able to glean from this because the Pharisees are one of four religious slash political groups in Israel in the first century. There's the Essenes. The Essenes are a group of Jews that follow the Hebrew Scriptures, and they think the whole country has gone to pot. And so they left town, and they've set up like these secret desert villages. Um, if, you've, if you're familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, that was an Essene community that wrote those down and hid them in caves. And then you have the Zealots who 
hate the fact that they're being subjugated to Rome, and so they're busy starting revolutions. And every few years, a zealot leader pops up, and he declares himself to be the Messiah, and he starts a violent revolution against Rome. And they hide in the hills, and they assassinate people, and they're very covert and violent. Then there's the Sadducees, which we have seen briefly. The Sadducees don't really believe in the resurrection or the miraculous or the supernatural, and they don't believe in most of the Hebrew Bible. They only take seriously the first five books, the books of Moses. And their deal is they kind of want to be close, comfortable with the Roman rulers. They're wealthy. They're powerful. They just kind of want to maintain the status quo. And then there's the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a religious tradition that started about 150 years before Jesus was born. And their whole thing was they saw the people had wandered away from Yahweh and they wanted to bring them back to a lifestyle of devotion and holiness. And so they instituted these practices and they started teaching the people and it was a good thing. And they believed the Hebrew scriptures and they believed in the coming king, the Messiah, and they believed in the resurrection but they've just kind of gone astray. And the interesting thing is if Jesus comes on the scene and he has to pick one of these groups, he would have been a Pharisee. He would have believed the same things basically about God's word that the Pharisees did. He would have believed about how to live his life in ways to honor God the way the Pharisees did. And yet his harshest attack is against the Pharisees. And I think it's because they were the closest ones to the truth. If anybody, if anybody was going to figure out that Jesus was the true king, it was the Pharisees. And as we're going to read, they missed it. And so as we read this, we are people who claim to be followers of Christ. We, we are Christians. We gather and we worship and we pattern our lives after this book and the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And we are the ones that need to examine our hearts. We are the ones that need to be aware that like we are, if anybody in the world is going to see Jesus for who he is, it's going to be us. And so this word is not just to those people out there, it's to everyone in this room. So the first thing I want to focus on in the first 12 verses is that Jesus is our example. Look at verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it, but don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. He says, the leaders that you have been given are hypocrites. They tell you to do the right thing, but they don't actually live a lifestyle that looks the same way, that's honoring to God. Leaders should be examples to others in the community. In our men's discipleship class, the focus of the curriculum is on eldering, It's not because everyone in the men's discipleship class wants to be an elder in the church. It's not because everyone in the men's discipleship class is going to be an elder in the church, but it's because elders in the church, short of Jesus, are held up as an example to the flock. And if I, as an elder, John as an elder, are going to lead everyone else in following Jesus, 
the standard that's been set for us is the standard that Jesus wants all of us to follow. And he says, in, and Paul says in, in Timothy and Titus, like, you leaders, you need to look like the people that you, are, that you want to lead. And you should look like Jesus. And, and so Jesus says, the Pharisees, they tell you stuff, but they don't look like it. They don't act like it. So don't imitate their lives. Why not? Look at verse 4. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. They do everything to be seen by others. They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love the place of honor at banquets and front seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi by people. The Pharisees are outwardly focused. What are people going to think? How is this going to look? Phylacteries, that's a weird word. Those were prayer boxes that were tied to someone's arm or to their forehead. It comes from the book of Deuteronomy. And they would hide scripture verses in their prayer boxes and their phylacteries. And the tassels, again, from the law, they were, they were called to put were tassels on their robes. And so the Pharisees thought, let's make our prayer boxes bigger and our tassels longer so everyone will see how holy we are. Everyone will see how devoted to God we are. I have this giant box on my forehead because I love God so much. Back in the day, all of my t-shirts were vaguely Christian. Do you remember that period of the 1990s? Most of them were like odd corporate logos that had been slowly changed to have some like message about Jesus, the Lord's Gym one, or the, the Coca-Cola logo that said Jesus Christ, you know, never thirst again or whatever. That's changed, thankfully. Now it's, it's, now it's the Instagram picture of, of just the, like, the, the slightly distressed, shabby, chic uh, dining table and the cup of coffee and the strange little piece of a plant, kind of like this, and the open Bible, spending time with Jesus. Click. Just put that out to all my people. Hashtag blessed. What are people going to think? How can I present myself to, to show everyone that I am a follower of Christ? This is what the Pharisees did. They were all about being seen. But look at verse 8. But you are not to be called rabbi because you have one teacher and you are all brothers and sisters. Do not call anyone on earth your father because you have one father who is in heaven. You're not to be called instructors either because you have one instructor the Messiah. Jesus says, there's a problem with titles. And you might be thinking, well, like, what if you really are a father? Like, can your children not call you father? Or what if you are a teacher? Is that wrong? I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is, is saying that titles sh shouldn't be used to convey status. Holy Father, Right Reverend, Learned Teacher. What is that title doing for you? Is that something that you wear and it makes you feel good and it makes other people feel inferior? Jesus says, that shouldn't be the way it is among my people because you are all brothers and sisters. We are all brothers and sisters. There shouldn't be this rush for status and authority Everybody that I ask to, to teach is terrified. <laughs> and they're like, I, 
if they come up here, like, I, I, think, I think God wants me to do this, but I really don't. <laughs> and, but I, I think I should. I think maybe I should try. Or I, I think God's, and that's exactly what I'm looking for in people who want to teach. Like if you come and you're like, you know what? I'm gifted. I'm a teacher. Put me on stage. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to, you sit there and I'm going to watch you for a little while because I'm not so sure. Like, if getting up in front and being in the limelight is your deal, then that's a, that's a red flag. Who has the authority among us? Jesus says, you have one instructor, the Messiah. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is in charge. I like to be called Zach. That's the title that I prefer. We can really go astray, though, and we can create kind of a cult of personality in the church. And there are so many examples of this, especially in very large churches with big media presences and, you know, book deals and speaking engagements and and it can really easily go to a leader's head. And not just a leader's head, it can go to the church's head, that that's my guy, that's my leader. I was listening to Pastor Josh White talk about this passage this week, and, and he says, a sign of a real lack of intimacy in a community with its Savior is when its true love is of its leader's. That's so indicting for us. We, we aren't really that concerned about Jesus. We're concerned about the guy at our church, the, the pastor, the, the one that, that, that makes the Bible understandable for us. We don't really spend time focusing on our relationship with Christ. We let our leadership do that for us. And Jesus says, that's not how it's supposed to be among you. You have one instructor, the Messiah, and you are all brothers and sisters. Look at verse 11. The greatest among you will be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Who does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus. Jesus is the greatest, and he is the greatest servant. He serves us by going to the cross on our behalf, by taking our sin on himself, by dying and rising from the dead. He didn't have to do that, but he does it for us. And we, Jesus says, are to be people that follow his example. Jesus is our example. Henry Nouwen writes, the society in which we live suggests in countless ways that the way to go is up, making it to the top, entering the limelight, breaking the record. That's what draws attention, gets us on the front page of the newspaper, and offers us the rewards of money and fame. The way of Jesus is radically different. It is the way not of upward mobility, but of downward mobility. It is going to the bottom, staying behind the scenes, and choosing the last place. Why is the way of Jesus worth choosing? Because it is the way of the kingdom, the way Jesus took, and the way that brings everlasting life. Downward mobility. I like that. 
Now it says the whole measure of our life should be humbling ourselves in the service of others because Jesus is our example. But secondly, Jesus is not only our example, Jesus is our judge. Look at verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you don't go in and you don't allow those entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. Are we concerned about the kingdom of heaven, or are we concerned about something else? The Pharisees, Jesus says, they're fanatical. They're so focused on their goals that they're keeping people out of the kingdom. And they're traveling around the world to find people to convert to Judaism. But he says, you're fanatical about the wrong things. And what are we fanatical about? Is it our our political party or our sports team or the latest movie? They don't have those anymore. Back in the day. Or maybe it's a theological thing. Maybe you're just such a raging Calvinist that you have to talk about it all the time. Or you need to tell people about speaking in tongues or how you see the end times working out. There's these, um, I do a lot of software tech stuff and there's this company called Adobe. You probably have heard of them. They make Photoshop and a variety of other things. And they have a job title um, called like a Photoshop evangelist. Like that can be your job at Adobe. And your whole job is to just tell people how awesome Photoshop is. Go around and you appear on uh, podcasts and blogs and you give presentations and look at this thing and you can make this picture and change this color. Isn't this amazing? Aren't we awesome? We did it. That's your job. You're a Photoshop evangelist. What are you excited about? What are you fanatical about? What are you crossing the ocean to tell people about? See, the truth is we will talk about what we are excited about. When you go to work and you answer the question, how was your weekend? Is it, man, I spent such a beautiful time with God's people on Sunday. We worshiped and we studied the word and and it was so great. Or was it, you know, I barbecued this really great pork roast on Saturday night and it was, you should get to Costco right now and you should get it and Or as, man, I saw this concert and it was amazing and the light show or, have you ever tried CrossFit? (laughs) You will talk about what you're excited about. Do we talk about Jesus? Are we excited about the kingdom of heaven? Or are we excited about something else? Verse 16, woe to you blind guides who say, whoever takes an oath by the temple, it means nothing, but whoever takes an oath by the gold of the temple is bound by his oath. Blind fools, for which is greater the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? Also, whoever takes an oath by the altar, it means nothing, but whoever takes an oath by the gift that is bound by his oath. Blind people, what, for which is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, The one who takes an oath by the altar takes an oath by it and everything on it. The one who takes an oath by the temple takes an oath by it and by him who dwells in it. And the one who takes an oath by heaven takes an oath by God's throne and by him who sits on it. What does that mean? So it would have been common practice to take oaths, to to make promises. I'm going to pay you back and I swear by 
whatever. And the Pharisees said that if you swear by the temple, you don't have to keep your promise for some reason. But if you swear by the gold in the temple, then God is going to hold you to your promise. If you swear by the altar, it's not a big deal. You can break that promise. But if you swear by the gift, the lamb or the goat that you put on the altar, then God will hold you accountable if you break your word. See, the Pharisees, they're assigning more value to the things that they bring to God in worship than the things that God brings. Whose idea was the altar? It was God's idea. He even says in Exodus when it's built that this is the model of the altar that actually exists in heaven. This is my design, Moses. I want you to build this altar to worship me. That's God's contribution to the worship experience of Israel. And what's their contribution? They bring a lamb and they set it on the altar. And the Pharisees say, you know, the altar, not a big deal. The lamb on the altar, that's a big deal. What do we value about our experience with Christ? Is it the things that God brings to the table or is it the things that we bring to the table? A.W. Tozer says, what I believe about God is the most important thing about me. Where do we focus our relationship with the Lord? How do we navigate our Christian experience? I think about this a lot when I think about the songs that we sing. There's a lot of songs out there that we can choose to sing. And and some of the songs that are super popular, they elevate our contribution to our salvation really highly. And they kind of forget about God's contribution. They don't talk about God's glory. And they say things like, I will follow you wherever you go, and I will give my life to you, and I'm offering this to you. And and those aren't necessarily always bad, but how much are we saturating our life with the awesome things that we do for God and forgetting the fact that God holds every one of our breaths in His hands? That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were assigning more value to their part than they were to God's. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but gulp down a camel. This is really... This is really clever of the Pharisees because it sounds like if you have an herb garden and you're taking nine mint leaves for yourself and giving one to God, that that's, that's, that's real devotion, isn't it? Like you're just serious. Honestly, they probably had a servant to do that, so they probably didn't actually have to do that themselves. But the reality is, is they're serving God in ways that are easy, I've got a bunch of cumin. Here's a little cumin for Jesus. Keep the rest of this cumin for myself. It's not hard. But look how dedicated I am to God because I did these things, these outward things. I put a little fish on my car. I love Jesus. 
I went to Hobby Lobby and bought everything and put it in my living room because I love Jesus. But Jesus says, faithfulness should cost you something. Faithfulness has a price. Listen to Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression or the offspring of my body for my own sin? Look at all of these things that I could do that would cost me. God says, no, mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. And the truth is, these outward things, they can be used as kind of scapegoats to really walk in faithfulness, to really do justice. These are all relationship words. They're people words. There's a whole, there's a whole group of people who simply write a check to a church or a nonprofit or some ministry and like there i've i've contributed to the work of the kingdom but they don't love their neighbors they don't they don't see those in need they don't look with compassion on their communities but somehow they don't have to because they wrote a check and i don't want to disparage writing a check but that's easy. That's what Jesus says. You shouldn't stop tithing your mint, but you should also do these other things. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. These are the big things. Are we people who are majoring on these things and then also doing the lesser things? Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may also become clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but are inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He says, greed and self-indulgence. You, you run over people, but you look good doing it. And notice the, the ugliness in their hearts, the inner brokenness, the sin, the destruction that lives inside them. Jesus doesn't rebuke them because of the ugliness inside them. He rebukes them because they hide it. We need to be people that not only recognize what's inside of us, but bring it out into the light, bring it out into the open so it can be cleaned. The Pharisees are painting over every kind of impurity, Jesus says, and trying to hide it from view. They don't want anybody to see it. They don't want, it, they want, they don't want to get rid of it. They don't want to bring it to the light and have Jesus clean it by His grace. They just want to keep it away from people. 
Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the prophet's blood. So you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your ancestors' sins. See, Jesus says that that, that God has sent people throughout the years to speak truth to the Pharisees. Get back on track. Realign your lives to the kingdom. And those prophets, they were treated badly. Some of them were run out of town. Some of them were imprisoned. Some of them were killed. And Jesus says, you in the end are the same kind of people. We all think... You know, it's, it's frightening when you look at injustice in the past and think, like, I would have done it differently. I would have been on the right side. And, and I always wonder, is that true? Would, would we have? The Pharisees seem to think they, they would, but Jesus disagrees. And he says, fill up then the measure of your ancestors' sins. He says, you are going to do the ultimate. You are going to kill me. After a history of destroying God's prophets, you are going to, in a few more days, kill the Messiah himself. Those are heavy words, heavy woes. Jesus is our example, but Jesus is also our judge. Jesus looks at our conduct, Jesus looks at our lives, and he calls us out for the ways in which we are have gone astray. But Jesus is also our shield. Look at verse 33. He says, snakes, brood of vipers, how can you escape being condemned to hell? This is why I am sending you prophets and sages and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. So all the righteous blood shed on the earth will be charged to you from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. I tell you, all these things will come on this generation. These people have forsaken the king. They have turned their back on the Messiah And yet in the midst of that, what does Jesus do? He says, I'm going to send you in the future. I'm going to send more people to you to try to convince you. You're not going to listen to them. And he puts them in a long line of sin and death going all the way back to Abel in the beginning. This is our pedigree as human beings. We are all children of Adam. We are all mired in sin and death. And we are all condemned to hell. We run from God and ultimately He will give us what we ask for. But then look what Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, His tone changes. Who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her? How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
After this heavy rebuke, Jesus mourns over the city. If only they had listened, if only they had seen, if only they weren't so busy keeping up appearances, things could have gone differently. Jesus uses the picture of the mother hen. When, when there's danger and there's a group of chicks, the mother hen can't run around and get all the chicks, so she stays put and calls to the chicks to run to her. This is a picture of a chicken. I think it's in India, and it's pouring down rain on this chicken. And look at all those little feet underneath there. Here's the thing. The chicken is still getting wet. The chicken is bearing the brunt of the rainstorm. In her protection of her chicks, she is taking the blow herself. And this is, this is exactly what Jesus is about to do, isn't it? We are all condemned to death. We are all condemned to hell because of the sin that is in us. And he calls and he says, turn, repent. But our own actions, we can't, we don't have it in us. We can't do it. We can't stand up to the sin and the death and the brokenness in our lives and push it back. We are helpless like baby chickens. And so Jesus stands up on our behalf. Jesus stands up and faces death on our behalf. He volunteers to go to the cross and to bear all of the weight of our sin, all of the weight of the powers of darkness to protect us from it. Jesus says, to this generation in Jerusalem, your house is left to you desolate. God's judgment throughout Jewish history has come through invading armies. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Assyria, the Philistines, all through, we just finished in our community groups, the book of Judges over the summer, and it's Story after story after story after story of invading armies coming and judging God's people. And this is exactly what is going to happen just a few years after Jesus. Jesus says, it could have been different, but Jerusalem, you will not listen. And in 30 or so years, the Romans are going to come in and they are going to destroy the temple. What is the temple? The temple is the place where God lives. It's the place that you go to to experience God. And all of a sudden, God's people will not be able to reach God. They will not have any method to get to God. Why? Because Jesus has come to replace the temple. Jesus has come to say, no, I am the real temple. If you want to get to God, you have to go through me. The Jewish people, by and large, in this generation, reject him. And he says, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If we are unwilling to bow our knees in worship to Christ, 
we will not experience wholeness, protection from death, joy, any relationship with God. The only way to any of those good things is through Christ. This is a heavy chapter. It's one of those that you could maybe feel like skipping when you get to it. It's not a fun message, but it's an important one. And it's a gift of grace that Matthew wrote it down for us because it's an opportunity for us to ask ourselves, how are we living our lives like the Pharisees? How are we living our lives in a way that looks good but really doesn't bear any fruit? Maybe we're checking some boxes to make people think everything's okay, but there's some deep, dark stuff inside that we don't want anybody to know about. It's a warning to any of us who consider ourselves leaders or aspire to be leaders that we are called to model our king. And ultimately, it's a reminder that we only have hope in Christ. Like a mother hen spreading her wings over her chickens, he took death on himself, on our behalf. And if we're not under his wings, there is no way to stop its terrible work on our lives. And so as we take communion, we are reminded, Jesus says, when, as often as you do this, remember me. Remember my body broken and my blood shed. Just a few days from now, from Matthew 23, he's going to go to the cross. He is going to be handed over to the foreign enemy that's going to come destroy his people. He's going to go first. And he's going to be destroyed on a Roman cross. He's going to be killed. He's going to be murdered. His body's going to be broken. His blood is going to be shed not because he has done anything, but because we have done wickedness and wrong. And on the third day on Sunday morning, he's going to rise from the dead because he cannot be held by death and he defeats the powers of darkness and proves to them that he is the Son of God. And we take communion every week we, when, and he says, remember that. Remember what I did for you. Remember what I've done for you. Remember who I am. And so we're going to, we're going to sing. We're going to worship. We're going to remind each other of who Jesus is. We're going to take communion. And I would just encourage you to take a few minutes and think about what are the things that I'm doing to promote justice and faithfulness and walking humbly with God? How am I living my life in a way that is sacrificial and obedient? And, and what are the ways that deep down inside I know I'm just trying to put something out there so that people will see how good I am? To a greater or lesser extent, I think we all do it. I think we all just kind of fudge the numbers a little bit so that everybody thinks we're okay.
And if there's something that comes to mind, if there's, a, if there's a darkness in your life that you don't want anybody to know about, I would just encourage you to find someone who loves Jesus that you can tell. Maybe they're in this room, maybe they're not, but the Pharisees went astray because they could not be honest about their brokenness. They could not let anybody in to the dark parts of their heart. They had to keep up appearances. They had to whitewash their tombs. They had to show off how important and holy and godly they were because if anybody knew the truth, they would be ashamed and embarrassed. They'd probably lose their jobs. But that's not the reality in the church. The reality in this church is that we are all broken people we all know it, and we're here to hold each other up. We're here to walk with each other. We're here to point each other to Jesus. And, and I would encourage you, if there's something in your heart, in your life, that needs to be adjusted, that needs to be worked on, that needs to be brought out in the light, repent to God from that this morning, and then tell somebody. We all think that that's not a big deal. I, you know, I talk to God about it. It's good, but... I don't think it works that way. I think we really receive healing from our brokenness when we let it out into the light. And so I just encourage you to find somebody that you can trust to do that with, who will pray for you, who won't judge you, who won't try to fix you, but will just be with you as a friend, as a brother and sister. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.